reading from Genesis. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make quickly, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who prepared, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where's your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old, and my husband is old, shall I have, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the time, at the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, Oh, yes, you did laugh. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a child? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. 
Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not listen to you or welcome you, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, anytime you see the disciples on a flannel board or a stained glass window, they all seem pretty happy to be with each other. Uh, But what's interesting, we we actually don't know a lot about maybe eight of the twelve, but just from their names, uh, we know a surprising bit about at least three of them. I mean, what kind of people they were like and what kind of values they held. Turns out, at least categorically, at least three of them didn't really like each other. <laughs> I spent a few minutes on that. I hope I don't bore you to tears here. You know, in the time of Jesus, we always think, you know, there's Jewish folks and all Jewish folks are Jewish. Um, 
turns out, just like today, not all Jewish folks are just Jewish. You know, there's Orthodox and Conservative and Reform, and there's Zionist and a bunch of other ones. You know, it's sort of like the church, Christian folks. Um, there's so many different groups of us because we don't get along well with each other, right? So there's, there's Baptists and, and, and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and, and, and Romans, etc., right? We have all these, these different bits. And turns out Judaism at the time of Jesus was about as varied as Christianity is today. So, so let me tell you about four of these groups and let me tell you about three of the disciples. Time of Jesus, there was a group called the Sadducees. It doesn't mean they were especially sad, um, but the Sadducees were the people, they were priests. And their sort of job was to make sure that God was worshipped at the temple through offering different kinds of sacrifices, not just animals, but, but, but grains and, and herbs and things like that. The Sadducees only read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's called the Pentateuch. That's all they read. That's all they believed in. Didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. Okay? Sadducees. And because they were running the temple... And because Rome was in charge of the land, the Sadducees were sort of loyal to Rome because Rome let them have the temple and let them be the priestly aristocrats that they were. Sadducees. Second group we hear about a lot in the Bible, they get a really bad rap, they're called the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the people who said at the time of Jesus, you know, religion matters more than those six festivals a year. We want religion to affect the way we live our everyday lives. We don't want it to just be about animals and grain gifts. We want it to be about loving other people. So the Pharisees had that as their big concern, and it turned out they were actually theologically pretty liberal because they didn't just read the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They also read, well, the prophets and the Psalms. The Pharisees were the kind of people that if you needed help, you knew to go to them because religion mattered to them and the way they treated other people. Jesus was a Pharisee. We know this because, well, he quoted the Psalms and he quoted the prophet Isaiah, so not a Sadducee. Some of the Pharisees believed in resurrection. Just hang on, just two more groups. There's another group called the called the Zealots. The Zealots were a group of Jewish folks that decided that religion was important, but the only way religion could be absolutely important is if they were free from Roman occupation. So as service to God and service to their identity, they decided to counteract Rome at every turn they could. Some of them were what we call maybe nice terrorists. I don't know which kind of terrorists are nice. Um, Benedict Arnold, that's a better category, right? Um, you gotta see that the Zealots didn't like the Sadducees. That's real important. Because the Sadducees cooperated with Rome, the Zealots were against Rome. And there's a special group of Zealots called the Sicarii. That's, that word means like long knife or long dagger. The Sicarii were the bad terrorists. I mean, the really bad ones. They were the ones who would go to a party like Mardi Gras, and they would go to a Roman soldier in the middle of daylight, and they would stab the soldier, put their knife down, and walk away. 
so that soldiers would be afraid, right, of these festivals. They'd kill people in the night, they'd kill people in the day, with the point of making the soldiers terrified, bad terrorists, Idi Amin, Osama bin Laden. Those are the Sakari. They didn't just dislike the Sadducees, they hated them. And there's a group of people they hated just as much. Those are the people who collected taxes. Because you know who tax collectors are collecting money for, right? They're not collecting it for the poorhouse. <laughs> They're collecting it for Rome. And interestingly enough, tax collectors weren't Romans. They were Jewish people. So if you were a Sicari or a Sicari, you might have killed some of those tax collector people to send a message. We didn't tolerate that. Rome will not occupy us. We will not work with them. There's some other Jewish groups too. But what we know for sure is that at least three of the disciples belong to different ones and Jesus is different from those three. Jesus is a Pharisee. Simon the Canaanian is called Simon the Zealot as well. So there's a zealot. Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is a wordplay on Sicari. So there's Judas the bad terrorist. There's Simon the bitter Jewish terrorist. And then there's Matthew the tax collector. Now you might be thinking, Mike, you're standing in the Sadducee slot. I am because his name's Levi, which means he's a priest. <laughs> this is really interesting to think about. Jesus called 12 people, and in Matthew, 12 is sort of like the 12 tribes of Israel. These are going to be the new Israel. And one wonders if he didn't intentionally call people that hated each other categorically. Simon the Zealot hated Matthew. Judas hated Matthew even more. Matthew was at least afraid of them too. He might also not have liked them. But at least he was afraid. Jesus was unlike any of the three of them. That's who he picked to be the new Israel. People that hated each other. People who had nothing in common politically or not a lot even theologically. And that was the interesting bit, right? That Jesus and being a disciple didn't mean they all looked the same or thought the same. Being a disciple meant in some ways they had to face the very difficult business of reconciliation on a daily basis. Makes me wonder if that's why Jesus sent them out two by two. Makes me wonder which two went together. <laughs> Did Jesus make Matthew go with Judas? Seems something like Jesus would do. <laughs> Did Jesus make Simon go with Matthew two by two? If he did, 
that wouldn't just the very act of their going together be a symbol that God's imagination was nearby. Maybe that's why Jesus tells them to only go to Jewish people. Maybe Jesus says, don't go to Samaritans or Gentiles because they won't know you categorically hate each other. Go to people who know you hate each other and get along. (laughs) And that's how they'll know that God has something different in mind than what you're doing. Interesting bit, isn't it? That Jesus gathered people to the table who hated each other and one of them ended up hating him, that being Judas, right? And invited them to the table day after day after day with him. Seems like doing something like that sure represents sending sheep out among wolves, doesn't it? We can think about our own American past just for a second, you know. There was this group of seemingly diverse people. There's been lots of them throughout our history, but just just thinking through, there was that group of the Freedom Riders, you know. Those were people who were definitely had irreconcilable differences in the Deep South. And they rode around on these buses together, and they did exactly, well, what happened to them is exactly what happened as Jesus predicts, right? You go around representing unity in diversity. You go around showing that irreconcilable differences are in fact reconcilable and people will hate you for it. People will revile you. Fathers will give up on their sons and sons will give up on their fathers and you might be handed over and killed. That happened in our country. That's happening in the world. But I want to tell you, I don't think it's just happening outside. I don't think it's just about differences out there. I think sometimes God is asking us to reconcile different bits of ourselves internally as well. And because it's Father's Day and my dad's not here, I'll tell a story on him uh, or two. He's still alive. Don't hold it against him. (laughs) Don't hold it against me. I'm going to warn you, it's going to start out not great. Um, But it's going to come to reconciliation. So my dad grew up in rural Kentucky, and he was born in the late 1940s, which meant really he was born in the 1850s. Because it was rural and it was Kentucky. Interestingly enough, my dad raised us at least cognitively isn't it interesting how we can think one way and feel a completely different way? You ever notice that? My dad raised us cognitively with the phrase, the minute you think you're different from everybody else is the minute you're just like everybody else. That's a good phrase. My dad had a couple of good singers, you know? He raised us with stories like, how when he was in Vietnam, as an E5, he'd forced black soldiers and white soldiers to get along. It was a big deal. 
from rural Kentucky, right? Sometimes used, you know, categorical words that, that, that we call slurs. That was the interesting thing, right? He, he did that while raising us that we were equal. But we, we, we took to the equality bit, you know. And I believed in it. You know, one time when I was in high school, um, this was my first black friend. I don't mean my schoolmate. I had a black friend who came over to my home. We were going to go play putt-putt golf together, and she'd gotten off work. Um, I don't know what she did. I think she worked at a restaurant. She came over and was wearing her work attire and was going to change clothes, and we were going to go play putt-putt together. I was 16, and I had a car. I might have been driving. And... Um, she asked to use the bathroom, and she changed in the bathroom. And, and my, my, my parents came to me while she was changing, and they said, you cannot go out with her, because people will think you're dating, and they will treat you differently. You will suffer for this association, and it will ruin your reputation, so do not go out with this person. Now, this was really strange, because in my head, I don't remember having this much autonomy, but, <laughs> but I did, and I think I might have said, you should be ashamed of yourselves. I mean, this was, of course, I was a 16-year-old, right? That's the kind of stuff we said. Um, you didn't raise me like this. Well, it, well, well, it turns out, I, I, I um, just found that really, really confusing. I did go out, and it turns out it didn't hurt my reputation any worse, you know? Not like it was great to begin with. It was one of those chinks in the armor you had with your parents. You know, we all have those, we all have those places. We have those places too where those, those, those chinks become really, really moments of heroism. And, and that's what happened. A couple of years later, it turned out, my dad, who had a nursery, his primary outlet for selling plants was at a farmer's market. And, you know, the rule of the market was you couldn't sell anything you didn't grow all the way. Well, I think my dad was one of the few people that honored that rule. Everybody who sold produce, you know, grew some of it and bought some of the rest. There's a man who sold cabbages out of the back of his Honda CRX. And it turned out he didn't grow all those cabbages. It also turned down he was black. And so the other vendors got him expelled from the market. You never know how all this goes when your parents tell you stories. <laughs> you just never always know. But in the story that I choose to believe, my dad was confident they ran that man out of the market because he was black. He was confident that that's why. Because everybody else was doing it, and nobody else could stand up for themselves. He just had cabbages in the trunk. So my dad fought the market. <laughs> he gave me that fighting spirit. <laughs> and was thrown out. They threw him out of the market for fighting an injustice he perceived to be very real. An injustice against a black person. Cognitive dissonance, that's the word we have, right? When two experiences don't match. What I've come to realize 
is that the principles my dad believed in were the ones he lived on. When he told me not to go out with this particular girl, he was afraid for his son and what would happen to me. And sometimes, don't we as families make that choice for our children because, golly, they're our children. Of course, it's difficult when children and justice <laughs> are decisions we have to make. I think the reason to talk about the difference of the 12 disciples is because if we as a church were able to do what Jesus did, if we as a church, and I mean capital C, Roman Catholic and Baptist and non-denominational, which really means Baptist said politely, if we as Pentecostals, Presbyterians and Episcopalians who are afraid for the unequal treatment of our children, just stood up and said, no, you will not treat my children like that, that nobody would be able to. Because there are enough of us that if we say no, the no matters. In my father's world, there were not enough of him. But there are enough of us. And I think as parents, and as Christians, and as people who live in society, we're being asked not just to be reconciled with these outside groups of people, but to be reconciled with ourselves. So that when we worry about the future of our children and our loved ones, when we worry that they will be treated like sheep among wolves, that's when we stand up for them and say, you will not do this to my child. And there are these places in our world that seem, don't they, impossible for God to build a bridge across. I'm positive that's why we're reading the story of Abraham and Sarah today. In that story, the impossibility was biological, but by no means was it limited to that. The impossibility was that these people were too old to realize the single hope for their future. Sarah was 80 Abraham was a hundred. The hope they'd given to God over and over and over again in prayer and worship had turned into despair. In the story, we hear actually the second reaction from Sarah. In chapter 17, we get to hear it from Abraham first. God says, Abraham, you're a hundred years old and you're going to have a child. And Abraham laughs. I didn't think Abraham thinks God's being funny. I, I, I want to give you a different possibility. Possibility is not that Abraham is laughing with God. Imagine Abraham is laughing at God. What a ridiculous notion, after all. That's impossible. I don't know why Sarah laughs. I don't know if she just thinks it's nuts. If she thinks God's really just 
too far-fetched, but she sure does laugh. Laughs hard. Impossible. You know, impossible. God says, hey, I heard you laugh. (laughs) She says, no, I didn't because she was scared of God. She must have grown up Southern Baptist too. Uh, (laughs) God says, it'll happen. It'll happen. That thing, that idea I have for you is so far-fetched that you're laughing at me for having it. It will happen. And of course, we know in the story, it does. What's far-fetched for us? Pretty far-fetched, isn't it, to believe that the Hutu and the Tutsi might ever be reconciled? Positively. Pretty hard to imagine, given what's happened in here the last couple of months, that when something like shooting somebody at a baseball game happens, there could be some real reconciliation, isn't it? pretty darn impossible to imagine God's going to reconcile ISIS with the rest of the world. Pretty darn impossible. In fact, if you heard God say it, probably wouldn't even have a good enough spirit to laugh. Of course, there's not just the world events. There's those people, often ones we're related to. <laughs> I mean, I've got several I'm related to. Pretty far-fetched God could ever reconcile us. I see them sometimes, too, you know? places, times of the year, you got to see them, reunions. (laughs) It's a reunion with disappointment sometimes, isn't it? Reunion with despair. Thanksgiving. People you had to work in the same office with. Pretty far-fetched to imagine God can reconcile those irreconcilable relationships, isn't it? Isn't that the bit of the story, though? God is able to do it. I think it actually tells us there's two ways it can happen. (laughs) You know, this is the tough thing about faith, right? As we're called to believe and trust this stuff. I want to suggest to you there's two ways this works. Because the scripture claims that Christ came to reconcile the world to God not just the parts of the world that we like. In fact, the parts of the world we don't like. It makes me think there's two ways this works. One way it works is God will do it when we die because we're not willing to do it with God right now. I don't always like that image because that means God's going to do something I don't want done. There's people I don't like enough that frankly it'd be better if we had different eternal destinations. But that's not the claim of our faith. The claim of our faith is that God's going to do this work. The claim is we may not like it on earth, but the the claim is God will change us enough that when it does happen after we're dead, we actually will be grateful for it. Far-fetched, isn't it? Might make you want to laugh. Of course, there's another way it could happen, right? It could happen now. We could say, God, you know, since you're going to do it anyway, I guess I'll try to do it now with you. 
instead of waiting just for you to do it. I don't usually do it that way. I don't usually like doing it the other way, but I think that's where our faith sort of offers us, you know? I was really disappointed when I was an English student to read that the definition of a comedy doesn't require it to be funny. You know, there's comedies and tragedies and comedies don't have to make you laugh, they just have to have a good ending, right? I don't know if it's that way or if it's the other way, you know, where real, real jokes actually make you laugh. I'm positive in this story, God is not laughing at Sarah. God's laughing because the impossible happens. And it's funny because we never thought it could and then it did. And maybe this is God's best joke of all. When the irreconcilable become reconciled. And maybe God is asking us to share the joke.